One of the things I've learned in the last couple years is aging is not fun, right? Aging, anybody know what I'm talking about? You start adding on the years. Like, like it was this weirdest thing where, where like, all of a sudden I noticed I, I went to bed and, and I'm losing the hair up here and it's growing out my ears. Like, like this just like overnight, like some of you know what I'm talking about, like overnight. And then there was another night, another night, I go, I'm going to the bathroom, I'm brushing my teeth, I'm looking at myself, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm handsome, man, I'm handsome. So good, I'm, I'm brushing my teeth, I go to bed, I wake up, I brush my teeth in the morning, and all of a sudden, one of my eyebrows overnight grew three inches, and it's going in a different direction. Anybody else, like, like aging, it's so weird. It just happens. This is what you young people have to look forward to. And then there was this issue where I go to bed and I wake up and it's all of a sudden like my metabolism is gone, right? Like I used to be able to eat anything and it would never, but then all of a sudden it's like I started eating stuff and it kept piling up around here and back. Like it was, it was the weirdest thing. And so when I realized, hey, you know, I'm aging a little bit. My body isn't as, as young as it was. I was like, I need to do something about this. So I started working out. Yeah, it's pretty miserable. It is pretty miserable. And so I started working out, and I'm like, there's this online uh, video, this online trainer guy, and he's like, hey, come do these exercises with me. Um, it's called HasFit Heart and Soul Fitness. And they had this program, and it was called an Insanity Warrior Program. I'm like, that totally sounds like me. I'm an insane warrior. Yeah. So I'm like, this is great. So it was, it was, I don't know, it was like a 45 or 50-minute video. I don't know what it was. And so I push play, and, and it goes from, from cardio to weights, back to cardio to core, back to cardio and cardio and cardio. And I'm doing this stuff, and I tell you what, like, uh, I'm sweating like crazy. My muscles are aching. Uh, my lungs have quit. They literally quit on me. And I'm like, this is miserable. And the laptop's going, and the guy, he's trying to motivate you. You know, he's trying to motivate you in the middle of this workout. And here's what he says. He says, he's, he says, Kevin, I, know, I don't think he really said my name, but I heard him say, Kevin, choose your pain. You can choose the pain from working out right now, or you can choose the pain from having health issues later. Now, if, if I'm going to be honest, this was not my finest moment. Because this guy says, Kevin, choose your pain. And I took my fist and I punched the computer screen. And I was like, how's that for pain, you jerk? Like, I'm dying and you're like, tell me to choose my pain. It was horrible. Oh, man. <laughs> pain and suffering are kind of like, they kind of go hand in hand. And most of the time, what do we do? Most of the time, we build our lives in a way that we can avoid pain. We want to avoid suffering. We insulate our lives trying to prevent any difficulty or pain or suffering. Yet this statement of choose your pain is powerful because we all know suffering and pain, it's a reality of life. You can choose your pain. Like I had to choose the pain of having a disciplined uh, plan with my diet and exercise, or I could choose the pain of having health issues later. Like, we understand how that works. We choose our pain. Pain, is not, pain and suffering is not something we should be avoiding. It's, it's helpful. In fact, Scripture says that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces 
hope. So I think we can agree, choose your pain, we get that. Choose where we suffer. Now here's the thing, we have to discern uh, what is worth suffering for and what isn't because there are some things that just are not worth suffering for. Like we go into, uh, how many of us in this room have done something dumb and we suffered for it and we're like, that was just not very smart, right? We suffer for the wrong thing. So for example, years ago, I worked at Madison House and we're working with all these kids and I'm trying to get these kids to understand, hey, there's a lot of cool things in the world. We have these bikes. And my kids, check out these bikes. You can do so many cool things on bikes. And they're like, ah, that's boring. I'd rather play a video game. I'm like, no. And so I got these kids outside, and we're on these bikes. And I'm going to show them, again, like, like here I am. I'm this cool guy. I'm going to show them all the cool things you can do on a bike, right? So I've got this little, literally, it's a little kid's bike. I'm like, I'm going to show you all sorts of cool tricks. And I'm jumping it and popping wheelies. And I had this great idea that there was a, a tire here. My idea was I would take the bike jump on the tire, and then jump off, and it would look really cool. Well, what happened was I got the bike going. I got some speed going. I jump up on the tire, and I fall into a tetherball pole that's right next to that tire. And I fall back on my face, cut up my face, and I, I don't know, I think I broke my shoulder. I think the doctor only said it was like, like, I don't know, sore or something like that. But I'm pretty sure my shoulder was broken. And they put me in this cast, this, this arm sling that I had to wear for like, I don't know, three weeks while my arm, while my shoulder was healing. Like that's, that's a dumb suffering, right? That's suffering for something that is just totally dumb. But sometimes there's a suffering that is, is worth it, Right? Parents of young kids, right now you're suffering through tantrums and sleepless nights. You're like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Listen, it is worth it because that suffering, those kids grow up and they become teenagers and then it gets worse. Sorry, guys, just to speak the truth. (laughs) There are some things that are worth it. Kids, they are worth suffering for uh, those moments. Your marriage. Man, marriage is one of the greatest gifts God has given us. Yet marriage also can also be challenging. Marriage is one of those things, it is worth suffering through some of the hard times to get to the good times. Our faith. Our faith is one of those things that we would say, it is worth us going through some pain and some suffering because God is worth it. We've been studying the book of Acts for a majority of this year, trying to look at how the early church, it wasn't just an institution. Like so many times we view church as an institution, a place where you come and you worship and you, and you partake in religious services and you feel good about yourself and you go home and go continue with the rest of your life. And we are looking at the, the book of Acts and saying the early church, they weren't just an institution, they were a movement that touched and changed everything around them. And as, as a church, our elders got together this last year and, and our desire was how do we not just become an institution? How, to, how could restoration become a movement that impacts our city our state, our world. And so we're looking through the book of Acts saying, God, would you help us to understand how we could be a movement like that early church was? We've made it almost halfway through. We're in chapter 14 today. Paul and Barnabas contacts where we've been. Paul and Barnabas, they've gone on a, on a missionary journey. They, they've traveled for, I don't know, somewhere between a year and two years. They've gone uh, 1,300 plus miles by land and by sea, uh, going to all these different cities, and uh, today, they're going to talk about the reality of pain and suffering. 
that suffering is not something that should be avoided, but rather actually they're going to tell us that suffering is actually a part of the Christian life. That if we're going to claim to be a Christian, we're going to follow Jesus, Paul's going to say suffering is a part of our life. And Paul's going to give us an example to teach us that we ought to risk. We ought to, we ought to be willing to fight. We ought to be willing to suffer for the most important things, which is Jesus and our faith. So we'll jump in, Acts chapter 14 that Jake read for us this morning. Context again. Remember, if you, last week, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they were in uh, Antioch. Uh, no, they were, yeah, they were in uh, Poseidon, Antioch. And they got chased out by the enemies. And, and it picks up in, in chapter 14, verse 1, and it says, At Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke about the way to a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned the minds against Paul and Barnabas. See that idea of, of poisoning the mind? How many of you have been in that situation where you've got some people who poison the mind about you? They start telling rumors about you. They start kind of spreading flames, maybe mocking you a little bit. Can you picture what Paul and Barnabas would mean? Like, here they are, they're, they're in the synagogue, they're preaching, and people are believing. But their enemies begin to poison the mind, start polluting the well, so they stop listening. Let me ask you this. When somebody wrongs you, right, somebody mistreats you, somebody poisons people around you, start mocking you, telling lies, whatever it happens to be, how do you respond? I mean, most of us, if we're going to be honest, that when somebody wrongs us, man, we return hit for hit, right? You hit me, I'm, I'm going to hit back. You know, you, you make accusation, I'm going to defend myself, and I'm going to say, well, you're wrong. I'm going to let them have it. But here, the enemies, they poison uh, the well about Paul and Barnabas, and what do they do? They preach. Verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas, they remained there a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. I love that because that is so unlike our human nature. And I can be in the situation where I'm like, man, I know people who have poisoned uh, the rumors about me, and man, I want to get them back. But Paul and Barnabas, they're like, that's not the concern. Our concern, we're going to continue to speak boldly for the Lord. This is, this is where when we were walking with God, when walking with God, the fruit of the Spirit become evidence in our life. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. And those things are best seen when things become challenging, when we're mistreated, when we're suffering. Paul and Barnabas, they're being mistreated, yet they're displaying the fruit of the Spirit, and they continue to preach. They're gonna say, hey, suffering is not worth me stopping talking about the truth. So verse 3, it says, They're speaking boldly for the Lord, and they bore witness to his grace, and many signs and wonders were done by their hands. Now, signs and wonders is one of the things that we continue to see in the book of Acts. These signs and wonders, these miracles, were meant to show the people that are listening, hey, what's happening here? These, these, these disciples of Jesus, the church, they're not just men doing these things. These are actually of God. These signs and wonders that confirmed their message. Because these people in the synagogue, they're hearing the, uh, Paul and Barnabas preach about grace and about Jesus dying for their sins and rising from the grave. They're hearing this, this new message. 
And then they see the apostles doing the signs and wonders. And they can recognize, hey, what these guys are doing, man, this is beyond human ability. This is beyond human ability. This has got to be something that comes from God for them to be able to do these things. And they can look and hear, man, the message and what they're doing is a supernatural work of God. And I'll say this. In the book of Acts, you see a lot of these, these miracles that are physical miracles. And we believe God still does those things today. We believe, in fact, as elders, we got together last night and we prayed. We prayed that God would bring healing to, to, to a friend of ours. We prayed for that. God does that today. But you know, some of the greatest miracles that we get to see today are not just physical miracles. We just see miracles of changed lives. We get to see people who display the fruit of the Spirit in their life when most of us wouldn't. In fact, this is where we look and say some of the greatest miracles that we can project today that confirm the message is when people can look at you, well, people can look at me and say, man, that guy was a jerk. That guy was selfish. That guy was foul mouth. That guy was these things. But now, because of God, now he's different. Wow, what's, what's different about this guy? Man, he used to be this way, but now, man, he's full of love and grace. Man, that is God at work. And when we have that transformation in our life, that confirms the message that God is a God of transformation, that God can change and heal and redeem. Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching, they're doing many signs and wonders. Verse four, it says, the people of the city were divided. Some of them, they sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. But when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews and their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities in Lycaonia. See, the leaders gather a posse. They gather a posse. They're intending to kill and stone Paul and Barnabas. And this is where Paul and Barnabas, they make, they make the decision, hey, it's time for us to make an escape. Paul and Barnabas, absolutely, they're brave. They're brave, but they're not stupid, right? They were born again, not born yesterday, all right? This is where we have to have some wisdom to understand. Uh, this is where we might turn to the wisdom of uh, the words of Kenny Rogers, you know, right? You gotta know when to hold them. Know when to, you gamblers, I heard that. There's gotta be a little bit of wisdom. So Paul and Barnabas are like, hey, we're, we're, we're taking a stand for truth, but we kind of recognize we got a little wisdom. And so rather than letting them kill us, we're gonna go to the next city. But notice, notice what happens, verse seven. When they got there, they continued to preach the gospel. Again, context, they just got booted out of the last two. They got chased out of the last two cities, threatened to be killed, to be stoned, Imagine how discouraging that would have been. Imagine how hurt they would have been about the people that are telling, spreading lies about them. I'd be like, man, pack it up, right? Go do something different. But what do they do? They continue serving God. They continue preaching the gospel because they believe that message was something worth fighting for. They keep going. Hey, we're gonna continue to stand for truth. So they get to the city of Lystra. That's where they ran to. Verse 8, it says, They came upon a man uh, who was sitting, who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking. 
And Paul looked at him intently. And seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprung up and began walking. This miracle has similarities to uh, the miracle that the apostle Peter did in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 came across a man who was crippled from birth as well. And Peter said, rise up and walk. And the guy was walking and leaping and praising God. You see, this miracle is very similar, kind of saying, hey, Paul is an apostle just like Peter. And what's interesting is, is Paul goes and does this, or excuse me, yes, yeah, Paul. I got to get my name straight, Peter and Paul. Uh, one, one Rob to pay the other. I don't know, never mind. All right, so uh, uh, Satan is trying to figure out, hey, this guy just healed this, this guy who was, is, uh, Peter just, <laughs> Paul just healed this guy who was, who was uh, unable to walk. People are going to be excited about this, and Satan's like, we got to do something about this. But rather than turning into persecution, Satan has a different tactic. It says in verse 11, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, <laughs> they uh, raised their voices in Lyconian, which was their native, tang- native tongue, which Paul and Barnabas wouldn't have understood. And they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And to Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. All right, here's what happened. They see Paul and Barnabas do this miracle, and the people are like, hey, these are gods who have come to live with us. Zeus and Hermes, these were Greek gods that they worshipped. In fact, there's, a, there's an ancient legend in, in that region where, where Zeus and Hermes, they disguise themselves as men. And they came down into the area looking for lodging. And they, they knocked on all these houses saying, hey, can we come stay with you? 1,000 houses they knocked on. 1,000 houses were inhospitable. Nope, you can't stay here. And finally, these gods that disguised themselves as men, they came to this rubbish, this old little cottage, this falling apart cottage with this old couple. And the old couple are like, well, sure, you can stay with us. And they took whatever Megan rations they had and they made a feast for these men. And in response... In response, out of appreciation, Zeus and Hermes, they transformed that cottage into a temple. And then they sent a flood that destroyed all the other thousand homes that were inhospitable to them. These people, they had this legend in their mind. Remember when this happened? They're like, we are not gonna let this happen again. We think that Zeus and Hermes, we think these men are gods who have come, so we're going to sacrifice to them. We're gonna worship them. We're gonna make a big deal out of them. We're ready to sacrifice animals. Now, let's just be honest. Like for Satan, that's not really a bad tactic, right? I mean, if you can't get him with suffering, you can't get him to stop the message with suffering, maybe, maybe flattery would be a good way to trip up the leaders, right? I mean, if, if, if Satan could get the people to immortalize these leaders, to worship them, and undoubtedly that would stroke Paul and Barnabas' ego. And they'd feel so good. Man, these people think we're amazing. This is awesome. Good for us. I mean, the last city, they were going to stone us. And now they want like, come on, how great is this? Right? I mean, you think about megachurch pastors and how easy the temptation is to get away from the message and focus on the attention. Remember what we read a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 12. 
Acts chapter 12, Herod was in front of all these people and giving a speech. And the people cried out, man, he's got the voice of God, not a voice of man. And Herod was like, this feels so good. And God struck him down dead because God is not one to be trifled with. His glory is not one that he will be trifled with. So Paul and Barnabas, when they realize what's going on, it says that they tore their clothes, which means this was a sign of, of blasphemy. We're not putting up with this kind of blasphemy. And Paul and Barnabas, they cry out and be like, hey, we're not gods. We're men just like you. Look at our hands. We've got five fingers and, and six toes just like the rest of you. It was a backwards country area, you know, back out in the country, you know. And so they're like, we're, we're men just like you. We're not gods. Don't worship us. And Paul takes the opportunity and says, hey, let me, pre- let me preach a little sermon. Let me tell you how it works. Now, what's interesting, Paul, when he goes into the synagogue, he goes and speaks to the religious people and he preaches a message. He always goes to the word of God. Hey, let me tell you about the Old Testament. Let me tell you what the prophets said. But now he's in this Gentile region, people who don't know the scriptures. And he's gonna give us a picture of how you contextualize the gospel. He's gonna preach to these people about the gospel, but he's not gonna start with the scriptures. He starts with nature and creation. Verse 15, he says, I bring you good news that you turn from these vain things, which is these false gods of Zeus and Hermes and all the others, and you turn to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea that is, and all that is in them. He says, your gods were created. Your gods have all these multiple gods and they all fight for each other trying to be who's the best. But he says, no, turn to the one true God, the creator of heavens and earth and all things, the creator. Then he says in verse 16, in past generations, this God allowed all of the nations to walk in their own ways. He points to free will. He says, listen, this, this God, man, he doesn't force us to, to live for him. He doesn't force us to, to obey him. Essentially, this is saying this is why there's evil in the world. I mean, one of the arguments that people have against God is, well, if, if there really is this God, why would he allow evil things to happen? And that's the answer. It's free will. God could have stopped all evil, but in doing so, he would take away the freedom that we have, the ability we have to make decisions for us to to choose to love him, to choose to obey him. God's not gonna take that away from us. This is what Paul says. He allowed the nations to walk in evil ways. They had free will. But verse 17, he says, yet he did not leave for himself without a witness. No, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He says, yes, God has allowed evil into our world. He's allowed us to walk in whatever ways we want to walk. But look around because God has still showed his love to you. He still gives you rain. We could use the rain right now. He gives you fruit gives you a harvest. He gives you a family. He gives us beaches to go hang out in and mountains to go explore. He gives us happiness. He gives us all those things that we enjoy. He says, listen, God has done that to you. He, he's given you a way so you can know him. Even in the midst of the evil, he's given you these good things. But before Paul can finish his sermon, verse 19, it says, the Jews from Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium, 
they riled up the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. And here's Paul preaching this message. His enemies from the past two cities, they gather around, and they, take, they, they, they talk to crowds to do what crowds do. Crowds, they follow the next big thing. Oh, Peter and Paul come in. Oh, we're going to worship them. And then you get these, uh, these enemies who come in, and they're like, no, here's the new thing. We're going to kill them. And now the crowds are like, no longer are we worshiping. Now we're going to kill. What, what, a, what a day for those crowds. kind of reminds me of, of the crowds when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, right? The last week of Jesus' life. As Jesus comes into the town riding on donkey, what do the people do? Hosanna, Hosanna, praise God in the highest. And a week later, what are the crowds doing? John, and crucify him, crucify him. And that's what's happening here with, with Paul. They're wanting to worship him, and then the enemies come, and they say, no, let's crucify him, and let's kill him. And so the people do that. They stone him, which is a horrible way to die. They stone him to where he's unconscious, bleeding from all over the place. They, they think he's dead. They drag him out of the city because they don't want a dead body in the city. They drag him in the outskirts. Verse 20 says, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. The next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. Like that would be a miracle in itself. Disciples are looking at like, Paul's dead, man. Who's, who's gonna rise up next? He's gone. And all of a sudden, Paul rises up. It's a miracle in itself. And they go on to the next city, to Derby, And look what happens in verse 21. When they got to the city, they preached the gospel of that city, and they made many disciples. I don't know about you, but I'm like, Paul, Paul, come here, come here for a sec, Paul. Paul, you just got stoned. And I'm not talking about Washington State stoning. I'm talking about biblical stoning, right? You just got stoned. You almost died, Paul. Like, Paul, give it up. Paul, go do something else. Paul says, no, I'm going to choose my pain. I could choose the pain of disobeying God. I could choose the pain of being faithful to him and facing some persecution. Choose your pain. The pain of, of claiming to trust Jesus. The pain of saying, hey, Jesus suffered for me. Or the pain of actually being willing to suffer for him and living for him. Paul says, no, Jesus, the gospel, is the most important thing. It's something that's worth fighting for. It's something that's worth, if I have to suffer for it, I'm willing to suffer for it because it is that important. And I love this because now we're coming to the end of the chapter. Paul, Paul and Barnabas, they've gone on this missionary journey, and they're going to get ready to go back to their, sending, their, their first church, their sending church, their home church. They're going to go back home. And as they're going home, they decide to stop at these cities that they'd already planted churches in. They go back to the cities that were persecuting them. In verse 22, it says they went back and they strengthened the disciples there. They're thinking, hey, we saw a lot of new Christians place their faith in Jesus. They've come into the church. And before we go home, on our way, we want to stop at these cities and strengthen the disciples. We want to we wanna, we wanna help set them up for success. And they strengthen them by... Three things. Three things they do to strengthen the disciples. Number one, they reminded them to continue in the grace of God. That's what it said in verse 22. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. Now, we've talked about this. 
We've talked about how, how grace as human beings, it's not our default. Uh, our default is works. Our default is I'm gonna go be good enough and earn God's favor. That's our, the way our world is built. And so we talked about how, how continually Paul says, no, I urge you to remain in grace, to come back to this idea of grace and not works, of what Jesus has done for you and not what you can do for yourself. Paul's gonna strengthen disciples and he's like, hey, let me urge you, remain in that faith and the gospel and what Jesus has done for you. Second thing he does to strengthen the disciples is he places elders to be in charge of the church family. Verse 23 says, they appointed elders for the disciples in every church. Now, let me just say this. I know some of us have some uh, church hurt, right? Church is hard. Organized religion sometimes can be difficult and messy. But here's the thing. Christianity is not a solo sport. I mean, we're saved by faith alone, and that's absolutely true. You can't be saved on somebody else's faith. But we're saved into a body. We're saved into the family. We belong to the body of Christ, which means as Christians, even though it's our faith alone that saves us, we need community. We need people. We need other Christians to walk with, to grow with, to hold each other accountable, to go through. And in the very beginning, as Paul is planning these churches, as he's organizing the church into a family, what does he do? He places a plurality of elders to lead the church. And I'd love to take some time to talk about what this means of having elders and leaders and why we do this. That's probably a conversation for another day. But I want you to see from the very beginning of the church, this was the structure. You get saved, you belong to the family of God, we're gonna place you in churches. There's gonna be elders who love and care for you. Third thing he does to strengthen the disciples, and this might be the most significant thing, is he warned them that suffering is a reality of the Christian life. He said that in verse 22. He says, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wanna read my Bible and ask questions. And I think it's really good for us to do that because I hear that and he just said, through many tribulations, that is how you enter into the kingdom of God. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm like, what about grace? Like we talk about grace, by grace alone you're saved. And going through many tribulations, that sounds like work. That sounds like works. Here's what he means. We don't earn our status as a child of God through suffering. But rather our suffering proves our status. That's how this process works. Paul and Barnabas and suffering would have been fresh in their minds. All they've gone through, and every one of these cities, being persecuted, being chased out, the threat of being stoned, of actually physically being stoned, they face opposition and suffering. Why? Because the gospel is offensive to our world. Our world is built on works, on vanity, on showing others how awesome we are, on being good enough, on accomplishing yeah, the gospel is built on grace, on what Jesus has done in our place, on what we couldn't do ourselves. And the gospel tears down the foundations of what the world is built on. And because of that, our gospel will rub people raw. 
In fact, Satan knows this. Satan knows that as human beings, man, what do we value? We value ease and comfort and an easy life and a comfortable life and a good life and a fun life. He knows we're going to avoid suffering. So what does Satan do? He allows suffering into our life, hopefully to get us off track, hopefully to get us where we won't stand for what matters most, but we'll just cower to the world around us. This is why Paul says to strengthen those disciples. Through many tribulations, you must enter into the kingdom of God. And that suffering proves that you are actually a child of God in the first place. In fact, here's our our summary for this message. Here's a big idea I want you to walk away with. As the most important things are worth fighting and suffering for. We recognize, choose your pain. I can choose to be disciplined with what I eat or I can choose to have uh, physical problems later. I've made a decision. Choosing my pain. It's worth fighting for. Listen, beyond our health, our marriage, and our kids, listen, our faith is the most important thing that we can fight for and stand up for. Jesus and what he's done for us is that significant. Are you committed to standing for the truth? Are you telling others about the peace and the joy that you found in a, in a relationship with Jesus? Because like, let's just be honest, like most of us, we, we don't want to experience suffering for our faith. Most of us, we avoid suffering at all cost. And so we even, uh, we, we recognize like, hey, I still need to believe in Jesus. I just don't want to suffer for it. So we, we like to find pastors that tell us, hey, you can live your best life now. We like to find pastors that say, listen, if you follow Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy and happy and all your problems will be solved. Man, that sure sounds good. I want that Jesus. Problem is, that's not the Jesus that we learn about in Scripture. Contrary to the Word of God, Jesus said in John 15, he said, listen, the world has hated me. Don't be surprised if they hate you too. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 that anyone who wants to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. Whoever Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Let's be honest, how many of us choose to avoid suffering? We stay quiet about our faith at our workplace, in our school, so we avoid that suffering, we avoid that persecution. But by doing that, we're not losing our life for his sake. Oh yeah, we can avoid fatigue. We can refuse to help people in need. We can refuse to help people that meet along the way. We can refuse to, to refuse to help people. <laughs> I mean, of course, like why would we want to be the light of the world? Who wants to be the light? Nobody tells us to be the light of the world. No, wait, Jesus told us to be the light of the world. Oh, we could avoid inconvenience, like helping people and being in community with people and, and, and like having to bear their burdens and meet their needs. That's so inconvenient. Who wants to do that? It's not like anybody told us to love others the way that Christ has loved us. Like, we don't really need to do that, right? You understand that these things 
taking a stand for our faith, inconvenience, suffering. Listen, this is what God calls us to as light of the world, as loving our neighbors as ourselves, as picking up our cross and following him. In fact, it makes me think of a story from my childhood. My dad was my hero growing up. My dad, uh, a couple things I remember, he loved baseball, so I've become a baseball fan. I'm loving where the Mariners are right now, probably because I love my dad, loving the Mariners many years ago. Uh, My dad, when I was growing up, he used to do all sorts of of community work. He worked in soup kitchens. He uh, worked at a nursing home, meeting needs of people. I loved it. I got some of that from from my dad. My dad used to be able to sing really good. Uh, Somehow I miss that. I pretend to sing good, but my dad used to be able to sing. I've got a couple songs that my dad recorded years ago. They're so memorable to to me. (laughs) But my dad was also legally blind. And... uh, being legally blind, you know, I remember there was one time my dad was, uh, again, legally, he couldn't drive, and so he was legally blind, so he would have to go and take the city bus, and so he would grab his cane, and he'd walk down Lincoln Avenue to the bus stop with his cane. I remember there was one of the teachers of the school, a uh, school we went to, drove by and saw him, and at school, she was making fun of him. Man, who's that blind guy walking down the road with a cane? He's going to get hit with a car. I remember feeling a little bit of like, man, that's my dad. Shortly after that, we were at church on Sunday, and my mom's like, hey, someone needs to go get dad from a Sunday school class and bring him to the auditorium. I remember thinking, I don't want to do that. Because of shame, embarrassment. And there's all these people, what if they see me having to hold my dad's hand and lead him into the auditorium? I remember putting up a fuss and saying, no, Mom, I don't want to do that. Someone else can do that. You go do that. Because my dad died a few months later. I've got shame. Because I wasn't willing to stand up for that. How many of us, when we meet Jesus in heaven, are going to have that shame because we were unwilling to take a stand? We were embarrassed. We were afraid to rock the boat. We were afraid we might upset someone else. See, the greatness of the gospel is this, that Jesus suffered in your place. Jesus, he took the beatings. He took the crown of thorns, pressed down onto his head. He took the scorn and the mocking. He took the nails into his hands and his feet. He took the humiliation. In fact, Jesus knew how difficult the suffering was going to be that the night before, the night before he went to the cross, he prayed and said, God, if there's any other way, God, please. Yet, God, your will be done. Jesus chose his pain. He chose to suffer in your place, to show you God's love. He chose to suffer to make us whole, to give us peace, to heal us, to give us purpose. And we don't suffer for him because it's worth it. No, we suffer because he is worthy of it. When you consider what he's done for us, how could we not take a stand? Oh yeah, we like to say, well, I I claim to be a Christian, That's good enough. 
Listen, the Christian life is not made known simply through our words and our verbal promises. Our Christian life is made through our genuine faith and perseverance and faithfulness to Him even in the midst of hardship. So let me ask you today, where is it you need to take a stand for your faith? I think about students going back to school this week teachers going back to school this week. Listen, today is the time for you to begin to think about what it looks like for you to stand out for your faith in school this year. That you would say, you know what? I'm not going to say certain things. I'm not going to participate in certain things because I'm a Christian. That means you step into school and you start thinking about, man, when I find that someone who's going through the hardship, who's got this difficult thing going on, and I, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Listen, teenager, do you believe Jesus can solve the world's problems? Do you believe Jesus can, can change a person's life? Take a stand. Let me tell you about my God who heals, who, who, who redeems, who gives peace. Where do you need to take a stand for your faith? I would say there's probably many of us in this room. We've got family members. We've got friends. People we care about who are not living for God, who are making decisions that are pushing them further and further and further away from the truth. Maybe they haven't made a shipwreck of their life yet, but they're on their way. And we say, well, I'll just pray for them. I, like, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to ruin the relationship. Listen, do you love that person enough to have a hard conversation? Say, hey, you're drifting away from God. Let me call you back to a relationship with him, to living for him. Listen, do you believe Jesus can, can change that person's life? Then don't stay silent. Where do you need to take a stand for your faith? What inconvenience do you need to make in your life to love God and love people? Think about church. <laughs> think about the things that are happening at church. Think about what the women's prayer time on Tuesdays. Think about serving in the church. Oh, those things are so inconvenient. I have to get there early. I have to listen to Jake. I have to do all these other things, whatever it happens to be. believe it's worth it? Do you believe he is worthy? In fact, we're making some conversations about doing some ministry at Roosevelt Elementary School this year. Opportunities we have to run an after-school program on Monday afternoons for an hour. Opportunity we have to run a program called Mileage Club during lunch one day a week where kids run around a circle and we just say, good job, high five. You know what? We have the opportunity to have an impact on that school, on that staff, on those children, on those families. But you know what we're going to deal with? That's inconvenient to my schedule. I have all these other things I want to do. Well, I don't know if I can make time to do that. And guess what? Then the church misses out the opportunity to make Christ known in our city. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for your faith, to take a stand for the gospel, to proclaim 
good news of Jesus Christ. The most important things are worth us fighting for and suffering through. So where is it you need to take a stand for your faith?